your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to penetrate the highly secured archive inside the Kremlin and retrieve Cobalt's file before he can destroy it. New intel suggests Cobalt is already en route, leaving you... Four hours, 52 minutes. ...to infiltrate. To save time, we've chosen your team for you. Agents Carter and Dunn. As always, should you or any member of your team be caught or killed, the Secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Ethan. That's just funny because I see so many people jump when that thing explodes. Like, oh, wasn't expecting that one. Sorry. The thing I wanted to get across with that was uh, that very first line is, this is your mission should you accept it. And I think in all those movies, that's how that phone call always comes through. This is your mission should you accept it. And I think we've been looking through Romans chapter 8, and it's been such a highlight of the glory that God has and the, the, the offer that he gives to us to follow after him. And it comes off of this huge, last week we had this huge celebration moment, and, it, and this gift is offered to us. And so we, we're sitting here celebrating. Um, we started chapter 8 with verse 1 that says that there's that now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the chapter ends at 38 and 39, says that I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation is going to be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think we have this huge reason to celebrate that, that God has made so much of this possible for those who are in Christ, to have no condemnation and no separation from God when we're in Christ. So we have that huge moment of celebration, and then all of a sudden it's like Paul takes this drastic turn when he gets then to chapter 9. It's like we come off this huge moment of praise, and really this next section, I think we need to make sure that we view this all in one part. 9 through 11 can seem a little bit confusing, because even for me, I was kind of going, this doesn't seem like where I always imagined Paul to go after chapter 8. It seems like this huge moment of realizing what God's done for us, and the next thing in my head is like, okay, well, how do we apply this? And we don't get there yet. That's coming later, but that's kind of where I think it should be headed. But chapter 9, we see kind of this whole thing kind of zooms in on how God's word has not failed. And really the focus is on what is God's part in all this? What is he doing? How does God work sovereignly in life? And I, and I think maybe one of the dangers I think is that we can look at chapter 9, we can be tempted to look at all of it as one portion. And when we look at it, we can think, well, all of this pretty much seems like this is all in God's hands. Everything is all up to God. That we play no part in this, and it's just God doing it all. But I think we can do the other thing, is we can go next week to where chapter 10 is all about what it looks like for us. And the urgency that we have to then evangelize to others, to let other people know the good news of God. Well, next week it's going to seem like, man, this, this is all up to us. It's all on my shoulders. But then chapter 11 brings it all together where we see God working sovereignly, and we see us 
and what is our part to evangelize and our responsibility there. And it all comes together in chapter 11 in this perfect doxology. And so we kind of need to make sure that all of this, all these three chapters are kind of held in context of this one big piece working all together. So moving out of chapter 8, we're going to look then from that praising moment that uh, Paul had, really to this moment of mourning, that, that he's, he's weeping, because even though that we have this reason to celebrate, not everyone's accepting it. And so we have this tragic moment of this rejection of Christ. So we're going to be reading there from Romans chapter 9, but before we open God's word, I think we, we can take a moment to pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that we get to, to read it, to study it, to learn from it, to learn to grow, to live be like you. God, I ask that you would give us hearts to hear, that you would give us ears to hear, and God, help us to understand your word rightly. God, we love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans chapter 9, we're going to be looking at this beginning part here, and really this is the tragic rejection of Christ. It says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, and I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to all flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessing, blessed forever. Amen. I think Paul really here, he, he kind of speaks into this moment with so much pain for his fellow Jews. That even though they, they have the riches of God's glorious grace offered to them, they have such a long heritage of watching God walk with these people for so long. But yet in this moment, so many people are rejecting God. They've, they've turned aside from God. They, they, they don't want anything to do with Him. And Paul points out even to the fact that if it meant that he would, would then take on the condemnation, that others would believe that he would willingly switch places with them for the sake of others. That they would lay hold of the inheritance that's been told to us that's, that's coming, that's just that extra mile away, but yet they've rejected. You know, I think for many of us, we, we probably have our own kinsmen, our own family and friends that are in this spot too. I, I have family members in my own life that, that know about Christ. They know about what God has done for them and yet reject it. And they, they walk away and they don't follow after Christ. So I can sit in the same moment of mourning, knowing that they're not going to share in this inheritance. They're not going to be with Christ, even though they know all about these, the glorious inheritance they could have. And so that's where Paul sits here, is this mourning for his family. He just desperately wants them to share in that that praising moment for what God's done, but they reject him. I think it should burden our hearts too when we know people around us that, that reject Christ and that, that don't want anything to do with them. It should burden our hearts so much that we want to reach out to them and to share with them. So the Jews were known as, as the Israelites or God's chosen people, but it seems that the very people that God's chosen to follow after him, to be his people, instead they reject him. And, and it kind of causes a few questions to be asked here in chapter 9. 
And all of these questions kind of come around, and they're like, they're kind of rhetorical questions that really the answer to all of them is supposed to be a resounding no. By no means is that true. So the Jews would have read, read Romans and heard this about this grace that's freely given to all. And it would have just, it would have blown their minds. It would have made them think that something's gone wrong because really God was offering this for the Jews. The, the, this has always been kind of aimed at the Jews, that the Old Testament really was focused on, on them, his chosen people coming to him. So to hear that this is open for all, that, that God is calling all people to come to himself, it, it would have made them think that something was wrong because now God's chosen people have already rejected him and now we're offering it to everyone. And so they're thinking that something's broken here. And it makes them kind of ask this question that if God's people failed to follow him, does that mean that God has somehow failed? It seems that, like, that maybe God has failed to keep his promises. They, they were called to be his people, but they're not following. So does that mean that God has failed? And that's where we're going to start reading then in verse 6. It says, But is it not as though God's word has failed? For not all, sorry, let me read that again because this, I don't, don't want to <laughs> phrase this one wrong. But it is not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all that are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, that about this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, not, or had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of the works, but because of him who calls. She was told the younger will serve, the, or the older will serve the younger. And as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I think the very first truth that I already messed up reading there, and I had to go back and correct myself. I think it's the thing that we need to see that it is not as though God's word has failed. God's word has not failed. And it's easy to think that somehow God has failed when things seem to be out of order, or when things don't seem to make sense. We can think that God has failed us, but God has not failed. In this case, Paul uses the lineage of, of Abraham. And it wasn't always, the, it was always typical, I guess, that the firstborn would be the one that, that the lineage would go through. But that wasn't the case here either, because Ishmael wasn't chosen, but instead it was Isaac. And it was Jacob instead of Esau. And so there's the, kind of this changing of things that happen, and it's not just because you were born into a promise. Like, we don't just get to be born into Christianity. Like, I was raised in a Christian house, but yet, just because my parents were Christians doesn't mean that I'm automatically a Christian. Just because they were born into the family doesn't mean they're a part of the promise. But instead, it's those who answer the call according to their own will. So in many ways, I think that this can kind of destroy our pride. We can kind of think that things are lined up so nice and neat, and we can have it all figured out, but yet... This is nothing that we've earned. This is nothing that we've done, that we've somehow earned our right into this. But we need to be humbled, knowing that God extends this offer of grace to us, to any that would receive that gift that he's given us. 
and the benefits that we get from it is only because of what he's done. So it's all according to this calling that he's giving us, that, that people would answer this calling to be considered the sons and daughters of God. Those are the people that he would consider his offspring. So does it make a difference then, I guess, how God gives out this gift? Some people start to question about who gets that. Is it just the Jews or is it also to the Gentiles? And really that brings us to this next question. Is God somehow unfair in how he gives out his mercy? Like, should, should we better choose who, who gets to receive this mercy and who doesn't get it? Because I don't think they would have seen that the Gentiles maybe needed it or deserved it, but yet somehow they're still offered that. So is he unfair in how he gives mercy? We'll look then at verse 14. It says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he also hardens whomever he wills. So is God unfair when he's giving out mercy on people? Mercy really is, is the idea is that it's a withholding of punishment that's already deserved. So somebody's done something wrong, punishment is deserved, and mercy is withholding that punishment. So is God unfair when he doesn't punish people that deserve it? So I guess when, when we start there, it's like mercy by definition probably isn't fair. Because what's fair is the, is the punishment that's deserved. That's fair. And I, I think my kids have probably gotten tired of this saying that they, they, you know, we get into discussions or whatever, and they're like, we want, that's not fair. And, and I've probably come back to this idea a lot of times is what's fair is probably not honestly what you want. Because if it's fair for me, I've sinned, right? Romans, that's where we've talked about already in Romans 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes me. And what I've earned for myself by that, that sin in my life, the wages of the sin is death. So if, if I want what's fair, then that actually means that I need my own punishment, that I deserve for my sin. So when we know that we fall short of God's glory, we earn for ourselves sin and, and death. I don't know that we always want the punishment that we've rightly earned ourselves. And at that moment, I think that's when we're thankful for mercy. That God gives us his mercy freely. Because otherwise, that means I need to, to receive the punishment that's rightfully mine. So God mercifully is forgiving. He take, takes on our own punishment. He takes it on himself. And I think that's a pretty amazing thing that when we realize that's not fair either, that he would take that on himself. Honestly, I think that should embolden us to want to share this great gift of mercy. Instead of trying to say, it's not fair that you give that mercy to other people, that's only for me. Instead, I think we should want to share that mercy with others. That they would also understand what they have offered to them when they answered God's calling. So then right after this whole section, there's kind of this confusing part about Pharaoh. And it talks about this hardening of heart. 
And I think we can easily think that somehow it's unfair that, that God used and hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so that almost it seems like it, that Pharaoh had no choice. That somehow it seems unfair that God would use him in that way. But when we look back in Exodus, when we look at how Moses would go to Pharaoh and ask for him to let God's people go, the very first five plagues that are, that are given to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt there, it says for the first five plagues that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That he chose over and over and over again to harden his heart against God and, and to, to not follow after what God asked him to do. It was after those five plagues then that God began to harden his heart. And I think God was able to use the hardness of, God, or of Pharaoh's heart to show his power, to make his glory known. And I kind of think that sometimes there, there might even be that this hardening of heart can be a means to make us realize really how badly we need to turn back around. And so it's through this hardening of heart, I think, that we're meant to understand our need for God. So instead of thinking that God is unjust by freely giving out this mercy, I think we need to be grateful that, the, that he is so generous to give it to each of us should we answer his call. So those first two questions, I think, you know, is God, has God failed to keep his promises and is he fair in giving out his, his mercy is a no for sure. And this last one, though, feels a bit more like an attack, though. Like it's people pointing fingers at God and, and somehow thinking that they might know better than God. Because this question really comes down to, is God unjust by holding us accountable for rejecting him? And somehow this is like pointing back to God that, that maybe he doesn't know what's best. And maybe we would know what's better, that we make those calls. So we're going to keep reading in uh, verse 19. So it says, you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power, or to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? for which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. So I think that the, the sentiment of what's getting asked here in this question is, how does God still find guilt in us? If God is sovereign, he's in control of everything, who can resist his will? It, but this often, I think this is kind of responded, the words almost sounded like when you read through Job, that there's kind of this accusation of God that's made and that's like God has done something wrong and God is being put on trial. But the, the reflection back that we hear in Job 42 sure sounds a lot like this. To, to who are we? And I think it says, but to who are you, O man, to give answer back to God? I, I think really what needs to happen here is a realignment of sorts, is that 
that we as the created need to remember who is the creator and that we shouldn't be the one pointing fingers back to God saying, who are you to do these things? But I think we understand that God is good and God is sovereign and there's no reason to point back at him. So we're given this analogy of the potter and the clay and does the potter not have the right over the clay? And I don't know that God's just, or that Paul's saying that we are just merely lumps of clay, just you know, being molded and shaped to do whatever God wants. But I think that the idea is, is that the potter is, is free. The potter should not be restrained by us. The, the clay doesn't make the demands of the potter. God is free to use the clay as he pleases. So I think instead of us pointing fingers and accusing back to God, the far more appropriate response for us is not to fight back, but instead to bow down in reverence and respect in admiration for who God is. And it's like Moses approaching the burning bush that as he comes, he, he bows down on his knees, takes off his shoes, knowing that he's on holy ground, standing for the God Almighty. I think then as we continue looking at verse 20, like down toward 22, and it's, I think it says that God endured with much patience vessels of wrath. I think we understand that that God is not rejecting us. That here it says that God endured patiently. He, he patiently waits and calls and endures. It's long-suffering to see if we would turn back to him. Because he still wants his, to make his name known and his glory is going to be shown even if it's not through us. And he waits for that moment to see if we would turn back to him. And so with our thoughts and even our, our position kind of readjusted to understand our, our place with God so that we're not demanding of God, but instead we bow down in reverence. I think it's easier for us to see that salvation is, is something that God owes to none of us. God does not owe salvation to any of us, but yet he still offers it to all of us. So if we reject God that's on us. That's, that is not God's fault. So even though many people have rejected God, they've hardened their hearts toward God, they've turned aside from him. Even in that moment, God still made the decision to sacrifice his own son to pay for them, to willingly give up his son to pay their price that they would have the option to be free. And I think that's a humbling thing, knowing that, that God is not unjust. See, God, God will often rebuke the proud. To the person who refuses to believe or to follow after a sovereign God, he, he might rebuke them. But to the person he's giving mercy to, those who would humble themselves, to those who would submit themselves to a good and gracious God. So for each of us, we have this choice to make for ourselves that God graciously lays out this plan for us, that we have this option to choose him and to receive grace, or we can reject him and we can receive wrath. So is God unjust by giving us the consequences of our own actions? No. If God did not give us the consequences that we deserved, we wouldn't call him just. He wouldn't be right. And that he wouldn't be good either. So is God unjust by giving us those consequences for our choices? No, by no means. So I think when we wrap up all these three questions and we look at this and as the band makes their way back up, I think we can see that has God failed his promises? 
No. God has made a way for each and every one of us to be welcomed into his family, to be forgiven and to be free. So he has not failed his promises. Is God unfair when he gives his mercy out? No. God graciously gives his mercy to each and every one of us, even when we don't deserve it. He still gives it to us. And we should be grateful for the love that God shows to us. And is God unjust by holding us accountable for rejecting him? No. This is not God's rejection of us, but instead it's our own rejection of him. And I think it should bring us comfort knowing that God is a good God. He's going to do his will and we can trust him in whatever he does. And what he does, though, in this moment is to sacrifice, to give his own son in our place, even when we don't deserve it, we've not earned it in any way, but he offers us this mercy and salvation. So this is your mission, your, your call, and it doesn't come through a phone booth. It's not going to self-destruct in five seconds, but I think this, this is our, our call, and I think there's still urgency, and I think it demands a response. Salvation is here and waiting for each and every one of you, should you accept it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love for us, and I thank you for the mercy that you show us, and I ask that, that you would work on each and every one of our hearts, that you would soften our hearts, and that you would help us to see all that you've done for us, and that we would turn back to you knowing you've not failed, but instead you've made a way for each and every one of us to come to you. God, we thank you for your love for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name.